As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the total soccer show my name is joe lowry and on today's episode we're answering your lovely listener questions thank you to all you lovely people who submitted them for this episode we're going to talk about soccer skills that we take for granted we're going to talk about what on earth is going wrong with valencia and about diverse trophy cabinets more on all of that stuff later but first I want to introduce a man who betrayed Taylor and I, went off, had fun with Ryan, <laughs> went to Nando's, ate chicken wings without us, Graham Ruthven. Graham, did you have a good time in London? How are you? Hello, Joe Lowry. Yes, I am very good. And yes, Ryan and I had a lovely time in London. I got to see him <laughs> in his natural habitat, which is seemingly a Vegas casino floor for the ice conference we were both at in, in, in London. And as you say, we also went to Nando's. That is certainly his natural habitat. We even walked past a Starbucks on our way there. So he certainly knows how to how to pick his uh, dining locations. And we did a wing roulette challenge, which we filmed and posted on the TSS Plus Patreon because content why else that's the reason (laughs) we do anything in this world so yeah if you want to check that out subscribe to the tss plus patreon i did actually see we we had a slight bump in uh, subscribers after that was posted i don't know what that says about (laughs) us or our 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 listeners people paying to watch too many eat chicken but yeah it it, it got quite hot in there okay so grip can you explain to me because i haven't seen the video yet and i'm guessing still the majority of our listeners haven't seen it either what is wing roulette? Am I just uneducated? Okay. Is this a British thing? Can you explain? So this is a thing that you get at Nando's. I can't imagine anyone actually orders it for their meal. I think it's a challenge of sorts. So you get okay. 10 wings and at Nando's you choose your your spice of your chicken. So you've got like lemon and herb, which is very mild. And then you've got medium, hot, extra hot. Then you've got the, the ridiculous ones that you get on kind of hot wings. Uh, not hot wings, hot ones. Yeah. And uh, with Sean Evans. And so the wing roulette is essentially the, each wings each wing is a different heat, but they don't tell you they don't label which one is is how the which uh, you know heat each wing is, and so Ryan and I closed our eyes and we pointed our finger to a wing and then we had to, we had to, uh, and then there was a wing of solidarity at the end where you can get extra hot sauce to put on top of it, and we did sure. a wing of solidarity which we then regretted afterwards, and uh, Ryan went looking for a pint of milk. <laughs> so it is it's basically hot ones but without the camera crew and without the people there sure. to give you the milk that you need yeah okay that's exactly that's DIY hot like. ones right exactly Nando's you're doing it right well I'm glad you guys had a good time we missed you on on the shows this week but I'm glad you're back Graham because we have a whole slate of listener questions with us Taylor and Ryan not with us Ryan's still frolicking around England Taylor is driving around the roads of Richmond still at the moment of milk Ryan I think <laughs> right Ryan has still not found milk. He has still not found milk, as unfortunate as that is. Graham, I'm glad that you did because you are the more resourceful one of the two of you because you're back here, baby. Let's start with a question from Sean Rosales. Sean asks, what's something we take for granted in terms of what soccer players are physically capable of doing? I'm watching Patrick Bamford warm up, says Sean, and every single shot he's taken has gone in. 
and he's Patrick Bamford. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's Sean's emphasis, not mine. Hope he's not are, listening. Yeah, hope he's not listening. Are we just unaware of how gifted these men and women truly are? Graham, for you, well, let me back up. I think the answer to that last bit is just universally yes. We get very yeah. easily distracted from how hard it is to play this Agreed. game well. Graham, for you, what is the the thing or a couple of things that soccer players do that you realize is way harder than it actually looks? So first of all, I'm going to take an abstract view of this question and, and, and I agree completely, completely with you, Joe, that professional footballers are just so good. It is ridiculous. So when I was at high school, there was a, there was a guy uh, above me and in, in the year above me who played for Sterling Albion and Albion were a little bit stronger uh, then than they are now, but still we're talking about a third tier Scottish football team at the time. And Liam, uh, that, that was my pal's name. He was just breaking through. So he was, he was generally on the bench for Sterling Albion in the third tier of Scottish football. So in the grand scheme of things, a low level, but you'd play against him and I would play against him regularly for the, for the school or just, you know, at lunchtime or whatever. And he'd be absolutely incredible. <laughs> and, I, and I always thought the main difference was how quickly he did everything. Everything happened so quickly. And I'm not talking about pace necessarily. Liam wasn't particularly fast. I'm talking about how quickly he could set himself and take a touch and then play a pass or take a shot or whatever. That kind of, that motion was was just all done in one. Whereas I have to, you know, concentrate on taking the touch and then look and then pass or shoot or whatever. He did that so quickly. And that was a, a bench player for Sterling Albion in the third tier of Scottish football. So yes, agreed. Soccer players in general, men and women, are just absolutely ridiculous at what they do. At the elite level, I think we're maybe not uh, we're not quite aware of just how fit these men and women are, particularly in the modern game. I mean, if you went back to the days of Razor Ruddock and uh, Ryan's beloved crazy gang at Wimbledon, they were every men in terms of their fitness levels. I don't think they were particularly fit. But then you look at the modern game now, and Calvin Phillips is a good example of this after the World Cup. Pep Guardiola said he'd come back unfit and overweight. And I remember the next game seeing, seeing him ready to come off the bench and he's putting his shirt on and you can see he is absolutely ripped. <laughs> um, so being overweight for a footballer in a Pep team just isn't the same as being overweight for, for the rest of us. And obviously we had, uh, we've, we've kind of had two decades of soccer players being super fit. Arsene Wenger was the, the one who really changed the landscape in the Premier League, certainly in that regard. But in the age of pressing and counter-pressing, I think it's been taken to an even higher level. So if you were to compare someone, even someone who occasionally runs marathons or, you know, does a lot of long-distance running in their spare time, I think if you were to compare them to stuff like the lung capacity of a Premier League footballer, it would just be nowhere, nowhere close. In terms of technical ability, one thing I would say, um, just one further beat, one, one difference, one thing that soccer players are incredible at, I think is... That is taking a first touch. I don't. I, I think yep. we don't always appreciate how Top good they list. are at that. And I think that's related to mental sharpness as well. Because if you have the technical ability to take the right first touch without thinking really about the technical execution of it, you can think about the purpose of that first touch and where you want to direct it. And then from there, everything flows much easier. So if you're uh, a possession-based team, you think of players in the Rondo, and I know it's one touch, the Rondo, but nonetheless, they're, they're not really thinking about the technical execu execution of the pass, they're more thinking about the direction and the purpose of the pass, and so that just makes their play so much more effective. So that's one of the things. Even at a lower level, you know, Sterling Albion, we're the bottom tier of uh, Scottish football, our players' first touch isn't always great, um, and so that's even a big difference between the lower leagues and maybe the elite level like the Premier League. Yeah, the first touch is top of my list, Graham, because I think it's so closely tied in with what you what you opened with about speed of play, right? If your first touch is, is not there or if their baseline technical ability isn't high enough, you can't play at the level that's required to succeed, even, even in the third tier of Scotland or even at like the youth national team level. I, I have a similar story to the one that you tossed out about, about your friend, friend playing for Sterling Albion. One of some of my best friends growing up, their cousin – uh, they're, they're Peruvian, and their cousin was in, I think, maybe one U-17 camp in Peru. Like, not not as really someone that's going to come up and play and, and going to ever be on the senior team. Or, or, I mean, it's too early to tell at that level, I guess. But that never really seemed to be in the cards. But, I mean, he was just good at soccer. He was way better than me. He's the best player, or one of the best players that I've ever played with. Absolutely unreal. The first touch, the speed, the shiftiness, the close control, and the speed of play. All of those things tossed together into a nice little package. Yeah, th those things make soccer players just kind of a different breed. And I, I love that Sean mentions 
the the shots that Patrick Bamford takes in warmups because whenever I go, if I was out covering a Phoenix Rising game or something along those lines, whenever you're watching warmups, it is absurd to see the shooting technique and the the ability that all of these players have in so many different categories: shooting, passing, pinging some of these passes. I mean, I remember playing. Uh, playing pickup soccer with Bobby Warshaw a few years ago now before MLS Cup, and Bobby said, you know, Joe, hit me the ball. And I hit it to him, and he hits it back. It's like, no, like, hit me the ball. It's a different yeah. level of expectation. And, I, I, I mean, I'm just not at that level, Graham. We're just not at that level. I did want to ask you, before we ditch this one for our next question, Graham, what, what, is, what is the thing that you feel like you are closest at? I'm sure it is still a mile in between. I've seen you play. You're, you're better than me, that's for sure. Like, what is... What is the thing that you feel like if you had just that little extra time to train that at least that small part of your game might, might be good enough for lower division soccer? See, the thing that I've, I fancy myself with in terms of my, my soccer skills has always been keepy-uppies, like keeping yeah. the ground, uh, keeping the ball up off the ground. But that doesn't have a very practical uh, <laughs> usage on, an, on a real soccer pitch. So I'm not sure that would actually... Hold hold me in uh, hold me in good stead on 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 an, on an actual soccer pitch. I I I, uh, I don't know. I don't think there's anything that would be useful that I w- I would say could hold up to a professional soccer player. As I say, keep yuppies. If if if, if uh, soccer AM soccer AM is a, a show in the UK and they, they have like skills school. If they ever came round my club that I was playing for, then then maybe I would be able to hold my my own there. But other than that, yeah, I think I'd be on the transfer list. I'm gonna give Graham. I'm gonna give your answer as height because I think your height is something yeah. that would translate to the professional game. Other than yeah, that, something um, I have no control over. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Other than that, I'm certainly in trouble, and I think uh, I think we both might be in a little bit of trouble there. Sean, thank you so much for the question. That was a fun one. This next one, Graham, comes from Cameron Trusinski, uh, who says there's plenty of players who have accumulated huge trophy counts. But they're mostly repeat trophies, which must look sort of boring in a case or a cabinet. I love this. Which player boasts the greatest variety of different trophies? Graham, this one sent me down a little bit of a Wikipedia rabbit hole. Yeah. It's it's difficult to know if we came up with the answer here, but I do have a few choices, one with, with more, and then a couple that came in pretty close behind. Graham, who is your number one for this one? Yeah, so same as you, Joe. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, there will be a definitive answer answer somewhere out there, but actually finding that definitive answer is is very difficult. So I too went down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. I think the player with the greatest variety of different trophies is almost certainly going to be a player from the modern age because there are simply more trophies in modern soccer than there was back in the day. So while I did have a look through some of the big names in the 60s and the 70s, all my suggestions are modern players for that for that reason. So um, I've got three su- suggestions here. So maybe an obvious one, a starting point here. Lionel Messi has won 13 different trophies for club and country. Second suggestion, Cristiano Ronaldo betters that. So he's won 19 different trophies for club and country. So that's maybe the one area where he still has the better of Lionel Messi. He can cling to that in Saudi Arabia while he's getting his, whatever it is, <laughs> 10 million euros a week or, or, or whatever. But um, the player that I found with the most, uh, the highest number of different trophies was Danny Alves. Yep. He was the only player that I could find who had hit 20 different trophies and titles over the course of his career. So he won trophies in Brazil and Spain with Sevilla and Barcelona and Italy with Juve and then with PSG as well. And then there are a couple trophies with Brazil as well. Just going to his Wikipedia page and you have to scroll down quite a distance to get to the bottom of the honours section. And there's even quite a few things in individual honours there as well. So his trophy cabinet, I suggest, might be a trophy house, Danny Alves. Um, Joe, have you got anything that beats 20 different trophies, Danny Alves. No, so Danny Alves was my answer, Graham, here as well. I also had Messi. I also had Ronaldo. That That's where I started, and it took me a minute to get to Danny Alves. I've always read that Danny Alves had the most total trophies, but I, I hadn't really ever thought about things looking different in the trophy cabinet and what that number would look like. I mean, there are... Graham, your point about, uh, about you know the modern era just having more trophies available is spot on because as I go through Danny Alves's trophy list, uh, you're looking at the UEFA Super Cup, you're looking at the French Cup, the Spanish Cup, the Italian Cup, the French League Cup, the Spanish Super Cup, the French Super Cup. I mean, all of these tournaments that have sort of spawned off over time. This is also, Graham, Danny Alves is in a, a little bit of a, of a strange situation right now. I, I believe he is currently in jail for yes, sexual indeed. assault. I, I don't know if he is still, okay, so he's still in jail. So things have Certainly taking a turn for Danny Alves and, and seemingly my enjoyment of Danny Alves and his career at this point. But he did top 
according to my research and yours as well. He did top Messi and Ronaldo. I had Iniesta on my list as well. I think he had 12 trophies across playing for Spain at the international level, Barcelona in La Liga, and then in Japan in the J-League. So he was he's a, an honorable mention here. Grim, for you, I don't know if you have any other players that were on your list, but I'm also curious, like, what is the most prestigious trophy of, of all these? That could be the World Cup or the Champions League trophy, or maybe what's like... What's in the tier underneath those two, the World Cup and the Champions League? Which one would you most enjoy winning of all of these? The Premier League title, I think, has to be just below that. So World Cup, Champions League, you could make an argument for either of those being the most prestigious. Champions League, obviously, is a higher level. I still think there's a romance around the World Cup. Obviously, it's played once every four four years, so the, the, the group of players that get their hands on that trophy is smaller. So I guess from that point of view, maybe I would argue that World Cup is more prestigious and the Champions League is more valuable. Um, but just the, the second tier below that is is certainly the Premier League. We've spoken fairly recently and fairly regularly about how the Premier League is now the Super League. And so it is another statement on your quality as as, as a player. If you're winning the Premier League, you are one of the best players in the world. Uh, world in the world, excuse me. I think generally um, any kind of league title is probably going to be just below the Champions League and, and the World Cup, certainly over any cup competition, just because obviously the sample size is, is larger. Normally, you know, 36, 38 games in a, in, a, in a league season, whereas in a cup, there's only a handful of games. So I'm looking through Danny Alves's uh, trophy list. There's some there's some interesting ones in here. So, of course, he won the, the, the Summer Olympics with Brazil in 2020. And I would have said he's from an era of Brazilian football that hasn't been particularly successful. You know, he, he on, on his uh, on his on his honours list, he doesn't have uh, a World Cup winner's medal. Um, but he does have two Copa Americas, he has two Confederations Cups trophies, and he has a Summer Olympics in 2020 gold medal as well. He won the World Youth Championships with Brazil, the U20s in 2003. So I think that's maybe the thing that tips him over the edge, because you you do have some players like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who has won 16 different uh, titles and trophies. But playing for Sweden, he doesn't have an international sure. title there. So Danny Alves has been in the fortunate position where he's collected silverware for both club and country, and that's why he probably ends up top of the list. None of these players have won the most prestigious trophy, Graham, the U.S. Open Cup. That will be Messi's in a matter of <laughs> months. Graham, let's take a quick break before we come back and talk about Valencia, what's wrong there, and a whole bunch of other stuff back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Graham, this next question is from Matt. Adler, it is short, it is sweet. What has gone wrong for Valencia? Grand Valencia are down in 17th in the La Liga table. One point out of the relegation zone. Five wins, five draws, ten losses. They have recently fired their manager. Grim, what is going on here? Put on your Spanish football expert hat. So how far back do we want to go here with that question? <laughs> what has gone wrong for Valencia? I'll take the short term or the immediate term view first. Um, so the straightforward explanation is results have gone wrong. So Valencia <laughs> went four games without without a win. They lost three of those four games. And as you say, Joe, they are very low in the, in the La Liga table. They're now just one point above the bottom three in, in the La Liga table. And relegation is a real a real fear for that team at the moment. If you look at some of the underlying numbers, Valencia's expected goals actually has them sitting seventh in the Liga right now. And their expected points actually has them in the top half. So that, that is a big underperformance. And Valencia have been extremely wasteful in front of goal this season. So maybe Gennaro Gattuso and Jesse Marsh can get together for a coffee and complain about their useless attackers together yeah. <laughs> now that they're both... Uh, they're both out of work and they've got the time. That would be an intense coffee date, I would it imagine. Really would, it really and, would. Both sides locked in. Jesse Marsh's yeah. pants incredibly tight. Gattuso being Gattuso. I can see it. Great. Yeah, I'm not sure we need to add coffee to that equation or any caffeine <laughs> at all, in fact, actually. 
It's a destabilizer. Yeah, it could be risky. Yeah, Valencia, they have uh, generally underperformed their, their numbers this season. There were actually some good times and good signs at the start of the season under Gattuso. Things looked pretty positive. So Valencia were playing out from the back more. There was some good fluid- fluidity in, in the final third. Goals were being shared uh, around the, the the team. Then you had this 2-1 home defeat to Mallorca in October before the World Cup break. And it was almost like opposition teams figured out from that point on that Valencia were very vulnerable if you pressed them high. And, and really, they didn't they didn't find a way to, to mitigate that. Valencia, it became synonymous to watch them and see them coughing up the ball at pretty close to their own goal and the opposition teams making the most of that. So that was a factor um, in, in how things turned. Wastefulness in front of goal. Then you have the off-field stuff with Gattuso pushing a cameraman during a protest outside the stadium and then him getting into arguments with fans, which we all knew would happen at some point, given it's Gennaro Gattuso we're talking about. But there's also a suggestion that Gattuso feels he was lied to by Peter Lim, who is Valencia owner, over new signings that never arrived in January. And again, we all knew that would happen at some point as well, given it's Peter Lim and that has happened with each of the last three Valencia managers. So Valencia are in a bad way at the moment. They need to make a loan payment of 56 million euros by the end of the, the of the summer, I believe. This was after they had to make a loan payment of 40 million euros last summer, and that's why they end up selling some of their best players on the cheap. Carlos Soler, who's a full Spain international, one of the best players in the league in, in his position on his day, he joins PSG for just 18 million euros last summer because Valencia just needed the money. And that has been the case for a number of years now. Valencia really hemorrhaging cash. They have this half-built stadium, uh, which has been sitting like that for uh, over 10 years, I think, maybe even 15 years now, uh, New Mestalla. And every year or so, there are plans drawn up to restart construction on that, but it never gets going, and then their financial problems just get worse. And actually, this weekend, Valencia are hosting Athletic Club at, at home, and the fans are going to the fans are going to protest. They're going to stay out. The, the plan anyway is they're going to stay out of the stadium for 19 minutes at the start of the match and only come in in the 20th minute. And the 19 symbolizes the number of years since they last won the the La Liga title and the Rafa Benitez back in 2004. And so it's just another way for the fans to demonstrate their unrest and and their unhappiness at how the club has been run by Peter Lim at the moment. And at this point, it just feels like he needs to sell up the club and and disappear because he has been a a bad owner. Valencia's financial problems that predated Peter Lim, but him coming into that club has just compounded those problems further. So, Grim, Peter Lim is sort of where my research took me here. A lot of the stuff you mentioned about the underlying numbers looked, I mean, without diving into it a layer deeper to look at game states and other stuff like that. On on the surface, at least, it looks promising to the point where I would be pretty surprised if Valencia went down this year. They have enough talent, and and it seems like results are coming for them, even if they're not coming anymore under Catuso. All all of the roads did seem to lead, lead back to the lack of investment in the squad right now. So this season... According to Transfer Market, at least, they'd spent 12.5 million euros across the summer and across the January transfer window that just closed. And they, they sold off 54.6 million euros in in players. And you mentioned a lot of those those guys already. So, you know, there's a gap there. Grim, my question for you and something that I, I lack context on surrounding Peter Lim is he takes over the club in 2014, I believe. There is real money being spent around that time. I mean, Valencia are in that first 2014-15 season pretty much even in transfer expenditure. So they're they're uh, selling about as much as they're bringing in. Then the next year, according to the transfer market, they spend 144 million euros on players and, and sell off 50 million worth in terms of transfer values. The next season is is a big flip in the other direction. They sell off a lot more than they're, they're buying in. But then, I mean, you look ahead to 2018-19, and this is a massive incoming transfer year for them. They spend... 40 million euros on Gonzalo Guedes. They buy uh, Jeffrey Condongbia from Inter, about 22 million. They spend, you know, 10, 12, 15, 16 million euros on a handful of other players as well. I mean, there have, there has been investment in this team. It seems erratic, though. It doesn't seem consistent, and it doesn't seem like it's really with an eye to be building towards something. Is it is it that Peter Lim doesn't have the cash to spend on this team, or is it that maybe he's just decided that he's already spent his money a few yeah. years ago and, and it's not going to happen again? It's a combination of both. So I, I read into 
some of uh, I read into some detail on Peter Lim's in- investment portfolio and some of the things that he, that he owns a stake in. So he's he's also a, a co-owner in Salford City, which is the the lower league English football team that's co-owned by um, the class of '92, the United players, the, that group that includes Ryan Giggs and Gary Neville and Phil Neville and Paul Scholes and all those guys. He owns forty percent of Salford City. I, th- I think he would argue he- he's had a, a, a much greater success rate at, at, at Salford City with that that's that shareholding than he's had at, at Valencia. He also owns a large stake in McLaren, the the British supercar manufacturer. He also is in business with with Gary Neville and a few other projects, including hotel football. Anyone who's been to Old Trafford for a game will know that's the the hotel and cafe and, and bar that's literally over the road from 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 Old Trafford. So I think basically Peter Lim feels that he's as you ref, as you referenced Joe he's he's put in a lot of money to Valencia at the start of his investment when he takes over and really he's kind of lost interest and is seeing greater returns from other investments and and so he from his point of view sees as a more feasible route to put more money into those investments and and those uh, projects rather than just piling more money into Valencia there has been a suggestion that he would put in the money to restart the construction of the new stadium because obviously you, you you can see a tangible return on that the new stadium opens they can sell more hospitality suites they can sell more season tickets and um, it's just a more it just generally creates more revenue for for the club that way and so maybe he will put up the money for that but in terms of the playing squad and the transfer budget it really feels like Valencia are only spending as much as they're bringing in and even then a lot of the money that they're bringing in has been siphoned off to serve service these debt repayments one other angle before we move on to our next question, Graham. We have a, a related question here from Patrick, from Peter, excuse me, Peter Shark, who says Gattuso was fired at Valencia, as we've discussed. What does this mean for Yunus Musa, Graham? I, I don't think it means much, at least right now. So Gattuso was fired, I believe, on January thirtieth. Uh, Valencia have played two games since then: one against Real Madrid, one against Girona, and Musa has started both of those games in central midfield. Graham, do you think a lot of the uncertainty here is going to affect Musa in a big way? I mean, maybe not short term, but maybe over the medium or long term. In in the short term, I don't think it's going to affect him much. In in the medium to long term, I don't really have an answer to this question until we know who the new manager is is hmm. is going to be. So for now, it's Voro who's who's in charge. This is his eighth spell as caretaker manager at Valencia. He has managed more matches as Valencia interim manager than any other permanent manager over the last 10 years, besides only two (laughs) managers, Marcelino and Nuno Nuno Espirito Santo. He's managed 47 matches now as interim manager, and that tells you a lot about Valencia and how they're run. But you're right, Joe. Um, They've played two matches since Gattuso was sacked. Musa has started both of those matches. Generally speaking, it has been a, a midfield three from from Voro. There was a slight variance in the Girona game where it was more of a four one four one, but Musa was still in the central midfield unit and then a defensive midfielder anchor behind him. So you can still look at that as a midfield three, which is generally how he'd been playing for Gattuso as well. So I, in the short term, I don't think he's going to be playing in a different position. He's not going to be playing out wide, which is maybe the concern for USMNT fans. I think Voro is going to kind of keep the shape of the team and the approach of the team pretty similar, which is to say that Musa is used as a ball carrier, which is good news for the for the USMNT because that's the role that we want him in for that team. But looking beyond Voro, I, I don't know how long he's going to be in charge for. He could be in charge for the, until the end of the season. But looking beyond him and, and uh, with, reg- with regards to a permanent appointment, I can't really make a judgment because maybe a new manager comes in, has a different style of play, a different approach, and Musa's on the bench or something like that. Equally, he could be a key player. So I'm not sure. And, and equally, equally, he might be uh, at Arsenal at some point, or he might be somewhere else that is not Valencia sooner rather than later. So I think... We'll- Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed for Musa. That is for sure. All right, Graham, let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Richard Rolson, who says, understanding that Erling Holland is a younger, a better scorer in a T8000 from the future, would Harry Kane have been a better fit in Manchester City's offense when one considers how Kane has evolved his game and Manchester City's style evolved post-Aguero? If not, Richard asks, how would Kane have fit into Pep's team Graham, you and I have discussed this a little bit before, so I know some of what you think about this, but I want to hear more. You can take any part of this question. Would would Kane have been a better fit for City than the T8000? Yeah, so I, I don't think there's 
any doubt that Kane would have been a better fit for Agreed. Man City at this moment in time. And I, and I think last week's match between Spurs and City gave us a lot of evidence to back that up. So when City couldn't get the ball to Haaland in that match, Haaland's skill set, I mean, at this moment, at, you know, as a 22-year-old, he's still got time to to develop and grow and add different areas to his game. But at this moment, he he doesn't have a lot else to offer to get involved in the game. Whereas Kane, in that match, was dropping deep and spraying passes wide and doing just as much to conduct Spurs' attacks as to finish them, which he also did by scoring the winning goal of the game. So Harry Kane, in my view, along with Karim Benzema, is probably the best all-round centre-forward in the world right now. And Kane would have been a plug-and-play signing for City because he wouldn't have changed the balance of their attack. I spoke a little bit about this last summer um, because the, the verticality of, of City's attack before Haaland came was, was in the wide areas. But then Haaland's signing changed that and now the verticality is, is through the middle. So if Kane signs instead of Haaland, I, I don't think we would have seen that that shift in the balance. I think maybe even... I'm not sure about Gabriel Jesus because it's felt like he maybe wanted first, more first-team football. So maybe he does still go to Arsenal. I'm not sure City let Raheem Sterling leave last summer if, if Harry Kane comes in because I think Raheem Sterling still has an important part to, to play in that attack. And, and I think Kane's signing would have eased the reliance on Grealish to conduct attacks, which we've seen more and more of this season because City now needs him to beat a man and put a cross in more often now that they have a, a more orthodox front man. So... I think with Haaland, you can see, when you watch City now, this season, with Haaland up front, as good as he is, you can see a lot of City's players going against their natural instincts, or at least the things that Guardiola has instilled in them over a number of years. You can see it in the way that Haaland will start a run in behind, and there's just a moment of hesitation from De Bruyne or whoever's got the ball, and either the pass doesn't come or it's a little bit too late or it gets intercepted, intercepted. City aren't used to having a cheat code like that. And Kane doesn't really make yeah. Those runs, maybe he does sometimes, but for for Tottenham, it's it's Son who makes those runs, and Kane plays the passes. So, yeah, I think um, that the TLDR of that is basically Kane is just a much more rounded centre forward than what he does in possession, and that means City wouldn't have needed as much time to integrate him. But the gamble that City have made with Haaland is, as I say, he's twenty two years old, Kane is twenty nine, and he has time to both. Um, for, for City to both adapt around him and for them to change their approach a little bit and maybe that means a restructuring of their midfield but also for Haaland to add other areas to his game and I think that probably will happen over time he does that he does have the technical ability to do that but right now he is certainly I don't want to call him one dimensional but he doesn't have the the, the numerous dimensions that Harry Kane has as a centre forward yeah Graham I, I retweet I think every single word of that so Harry Kane He's he's plug and play with City. I think he's pretty much plug and play anywhere in the world, any team, any style in the world. You go through and look at some of his numbers from this season. He's, of course, an elite goal scorer, breaking records left and right. He's averaging 0.69 non-penalty goals per 90 minutes, which is uh, in the 96th percentile among forwards in the Premier League this year. He's, he's outperforming his XG a little bit, but, but we know at this point that he is a, a world-class number nine. Uh, he's taking a lot of shots. He gets into good spots. And then he, he still, despite being such a dominant goal scorer, he's still in the 76th percentile, according to FB Ref, in expected assisted goals. So he's, he's creating, he's getting into good spots. He's in the 90th percentile among, among forwards in the Premier League this year in shot-creating actions as Tottenham's top goal scorer. Like, he gets into good spots himself, and he also drops in or, or links up and helps other players find really good spots themselves. So I think he would have been a really ideal fit for Manchester City to the point where, Graham, I think if, if Man City have Harry Kane, maybe they are in the catbird seat for the Premier League title this year, and maybe we're not talking about Arsenal nearly as much as we have. I want to go I want to go back to Holland though, because this, for me, is the, the interesting part because it actually happened, right? The Harry Kane thing didn't end up happening. Maybe that changes at some point. At this point, it feels unlikely. But, Graham, you kind of, you kind of talked about why, why you buy Holland. I want to know... How long is it going to take, right? How long is it going to take for things to gel? You mentioned, you know, it might take some time, City have time, but might it take so long that Pep Guardiola is no longer managing Manchester City because it has not been a totally smooth transition for both parties so far? Yeah, and and that might be the difficult position that City are in. Let's say two seasons from now, that the situation is relatively similar to how it is now, and you have 
Erling Haaland, I mean, Erling Haaland will probably finish with 35 plus goals this season. He's already on, what is he on, like 25, 27? 8,000. Yep, 8,000. Yeah, he's on 8,000 goals. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if he hit 40 goals in all competitions this season for Manchester City, which I can't imagine a City player in the kind of Abu Dhabi era hitting 40 goals in in, in a season ago, in in one season. Maybe Aguero did it um, at some point, but that is an incredible mark to hit. But then you have to balance whether Haaland is making City effectively a poorer team. And we spoke about this in, I can't remember if it was the weekend review or if it was last week, but essentially he, Haaland and, and City having to play with 10 men out of possession and, and sometimes 10 men in, in, in possession as well is making City easier to play through. And, and Spurs completely exploited that through Son and, and Kane in their last match to win that 1-0. And so that is the judgment that City are, are, are going to have to make. I think they're going to have to reconstruct their midfield. I think they're going to have to look to find a midfielder who can maybe lead the press from the front, who can do an incredible amount of work to to essentially make up for the lack of work that Haaland puts in on on, on that front. I think I think that's where City can, the shortcut is for City is to rebuild their midfield. Maybe maybe that's Jude Bellingham. I think he would certainly help in 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 that regard. Certainly a lot younger than some of the players that City have in the middle of the pitch right now. That's what I would be doing if I was if I was City. I'd be looking to to rebuild that midfield to then get the best the best out of Haaland. I'm just thinking back to our Premier League season previews and when the two you know big storylines were. Darwin Nunez joining Liverpool versus Erling Haaland joining Manchester City. And I, I think at least Taylor and I, I don't, I don't remember who said this. Maybe it was some of us, maybe it was all of us. I think I was on this train saying, you know, Haaland's going to take some time to adjust. we got to give it time. That's proven to be true, right? Maybe it's taking even a little bit longer than I, I thought it might. But we're still in that weird limbo now. I thought that the title was going to go Liverpool's way because it wouldn't take Darwin Nunez so long to adjust. And uh, I didn't factor in the fact that Liverpool, all the pieces around Darwin Nunez were going to yeah, self-destruct. I'll, so that I feel like I was we going can to get say, a pass Darwin Nunez, the, 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 part, the Darwin Nunez part, part has actually held up relatively well. I feel like he sure. has fit in qu- quite well. I know his finishing hasn't been great, but the rest of the team has fallen apart around him. So... Yeah, I, I also tipped Liverpool for the title this season, so let's not bring that. Let's not uh, let's not spend too much time on that, Joe. <laughs> yes, we are soccer experts. Let's take Graham. Let's take a break. Let's ditch these Premier League title, uh, Premier League season previews. Let's leave that in the past. Listener, we'll be back in just a moment. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back, Graham. We've got a couple more questions on this episode. This one comes from Derek Dickinson, who asks, is there anyone in the soccer media landscape that could fill the role of Ernie Stewart 
or Brian McBride in U.S. soccer. Ernie Stewart is leaving, I think, in a few days as U.S. soccer sporting director to head over to PSV Eindhoven in the Eredivisie. Brian McBride, I think, is already pieced out and is going to do, as Taylor said earlier this week, Brian McBride things, whatever that is and whatever he was doing before. Who He's going to drink in his bar at Craven Cottage. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, Graham. Wasn't it? Wasn't it torn down? He's going to rebuild it then. Oh, good, good. All right, that does <laughs> does feel like a worthy undertaking. Grim, or is there he anyone... might just be going to sit on a park a park bench with a bottle of booze outside Craven Cottage and say that's his bar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, whatever works for you, Brian. Whatever works for you. Whatever you want to do, man. Uh, Graham, is there anyone? I, I I realize now in my research, I was thinking more on the American soccer. <clears throat> excuse me, the American soccer media landscape. Maybe you broaden this a little bit wider. I didn't even think about anybody outside of this sphere. Is there anybody you think that could do a, a serviceable job as a higher up in U.S. soccer? So, first of all, I might need to have a better understanding of what role Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride actually performed for U.S. Sure. Soccer. And I listened, I listened to your Tuesday show with Taylor. I know you had a big discussion about this, and it feels like maybe the two of you are are, uh, are a little bit cloudy on what those roles were as as, as well. So, sure. that doesn't really help us. <laughs> uh, obviously, that's become a bit of a running joke this year. But th- there is something at the core of that question. What does a sporting director and a GM do for... A, a national association. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder if that role, certainly the GM role, is about having contacts and being a key part of the American soccer network. So I, I also look to kind of American uh, soccer pundits and, and the American soccer media landscape. So, Kyle Martino owns a soccer bar in New York. So I would say that's a pretty good way to network. <laughs> you could just have current and former players drinking together at Martino's bar. <laughs> I know U.S. Soccer House was a very different thing in Chicago, but I'm imagining a U.S. Soccer House in a frat house sort of way. All I'm saying is a round of shoeys could mend the broken relationship between the Rainers and and, and the Burhalters, and I think Kyle Martino (laughs) at his bar could uh, open the doors and that could be the new headquarters of U.S. Soccer. Graham, I love that so much. That is so far away from anything I thought about for this question. First of all, I didn't know that Kyle Martino owned a soccer bar. I love that fact, and I do think that's the perfect place for uh, for some schmoozing to happen as, as you're working through contacts. My answer for the GM spot, and, and so to recap a little bit, I, there is a lot of redundancy, I think. There, there was a lot of redundancy in the roles that were being performed on the men's side of U.S. soccer on the on the senior level with Berhalter and with Brian McBride and with Ernie Stewart. It seems like Berhalter and Stewart kind of did most things, and McBride maybe chatted a bit with the youth national teams and, and chatted a bit with European folks that that were involved with the U.S. players on that side of the Atlantic. So, you know, there is a lot of of chatting sort of involved in that role, but it doesn't seem like it's it's super clear. And then the sporting director, as far as I understand it, is responsible for setting the identity of the national teams, although I'm, I'm not really sure that that was accomplished across the men's and the women's program. Taylor and I talked about that earlier this week in the same conversation that you referenced earlier, hiring folks and, and working through more big picture stuff. For the GM spot, though, to circle back, I didn't go with a bar owner. I went with someone else who I think talks to people all day in a way that maybe Brian McBride was supposed to be doing. I've gone with Tom Bogert because he's on the phone all the time, yeah. taking phone calls, sending texts, sending DMs. Tom is, I think, attached to his phone. I think there might be some sort of lever that just holds it in front of his face, so Face ID can always be working, and it's just always on. Graham, I've got Tom Bogart for similar reasons that you went with Kyle Martino in his bar, but the setting of yours, I'll admit, is is a little bit more inviting probably than Tom with, with just the phone in front of his face. Love you, Tom. So what if we have Martino as the the sporting director and okay. Tom as the GM. And Good. so Tom, who I think maybe is, is single-handedly keeping the Bluetooth headset <laughs> industry alive at this point in 2023, he's sitting he's sitting at the at, at the bar in Mar- Martino's bar and that is the US soccer setup right there. This is good. Graham, this is really, really good. U.S. soccer is talking about you know building something new in Atlanta for their headquarters for, for training camps and stuff like that, or maybe building out some facilities that already exist in North Carolina. No, scrap all that. Kyle Martino's bar, Tom Bogart in a nice leather chair. I feel like this is pretty much everything you need. Graham, the only other, uh, the only other suggestion I had for sporting director, I think, I think Doyle could do a, a pretty solid job. Matt Doyle, MLSoccer.com. I think he's super smart tactically. I have a ton of respect for a lot of the analysis and, and insights that he has. I think he could do a lot of really valuable tone setting. The, the difficulty here, Graham, is 
Like, it's fun to think about this stuff, and, and we've sort of done a lot of this tongue-in-cheek. Derek, to answer your question, I, I think the answer is mostly no. I don't really think there is anybody that could do, like, a real adult grown-up job that moving from the, the media side of things to, like, the more businessy side. I'm not sure that anybody, maybe I'm wrong, I'm not sure that anybody has the business background, like, has the admin background. And maybe, you know, Ernie Stewart and McBride and some of these former players don't have the the perfect, well-bound, well-rounded background either, but... Graham, I think there is something to the fact that these roles are more than just coming up with good ideas that you want to implement down the ladder. Like this stuff isn't isn't just dreaming up ideas and, and trying to implement them and hoping that they stick. Yeah, I keep coming back to this idea of 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 um, people people. If that's a term, you know, what I mean, being a people person. People yeah. people is a strange way to word that. But Graham's a people people. Uh, the, he gets it. He gets it. Exactly. the The, the problem there is when we spoke about the whole Berhalter Reina scandal one of certainly one of my conclusions was that u.s soccer and american soccer in general seem to be a little bit incestuous and and you know relationships overlapping and everyone seemed to be from the same circles but if you're looking for a people person to go into those roles you are probably looking to a former player or a, or a, or, a, or a former manager who has a, a you know a wealth of experience behind them, years working in clubs and in teams that built up those contacts, and that's how you end up with guys like Ernie Stewart and and Brian McBride in those positions. So it is a little bit of a a, a a vicious circle here, a vicious cycle, and I would like to see U.S. Soccer break it and maybe think a little bit outside the box. But to be honest, it's not easy because I don't know who performs that role well or who would even be interested yeah. in that role yeah it's it's going to be fascinating i think to find out who u.s soccer does actually hire we can cross our fingers and hope that it's it's kyle martino and tom bogart but i mean we're going to start i imagine hearing more and finding out more of this stuff as the calendar flips over to march and april and may i mean it feels like it's maybe still a long way away especially as mexico uh i i didn't check twitter this morning i'm not sure if they've actually hired a permanent manager yet but it seemed like they were getting very very close to, to signing someone, you know, U.S. soccer is a little bit behind that, but I, I think we're going to start seeing dominoes fall sooner rather than later. Graham, we've got one last question, and this one is special for you. This one is from Jacob mm. Court or Cordy. As everyone is already aware, of course, Sterling Albion currently sits second in the Scottish League 2. Graham, what are your thoughts on the season so far, and how do you think the rest of this year is going to go? So the season up until a few weeks ago had had been great. We were building momentum. We had two of the best players in, in the league, the top goal scorer in the league or, or the joint top goal scorer in the league. The pies were good. And then the wind was taken out of, our, of, of us in the first few weeks in, in January. So I've already kind of referenced this, but we had three fixtures in a row postponed, including a match against Dumbarton, who are our title rivals. They're on top of the table. We'll never know, but at that point, it really felt like, given our form and and a number of other factors, I was confident we were going to beat Dumbarton. That game gets postponed, then two others get postponed. So not only are we kind of fighting Dumbarton for the title, we're now fighting the fixture list and we're getting games scheduled Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, which is not ideal when you're a part-time team and all our players essentially have jobs during the day and then they, they then have to go and play uh, a competitive match at, at night. The, the, the real blow was then Kai Fotheringham getting recalled by Dundee United on deadline day. And I'm still uh, I'm still upset about that. Dundee United, you're, you're not in my good books. I'm, I'm going to need some free merch to make up for, for that blow. <laughs> uh, and now Dale Carrick, who is the other good player that we have, the joint top scorer in the league, he's injured. <laughs> so that has really dealt as another blow and 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 this weekend we have another postponed game because of Elgin City getting through in the Scottish Cup so between all those factors all those factors i think even though we're four points behind behind with a game in hand and pretty much half the season still to play i think we're probably at the title race now and and i think the second half of the season is going to be pretty difficult we kind of had a reputation for being one of the more entertaining teams in in the league in the first half of the season largely because of fotheringham and, and carrick and the relationship that they have even if carrick comes back to full fitness it's going to be different for him with not without having fotheringham as kind of the supply line and the assist maker so yeah, last weekend we were without fotheringham we were without dale carrick we dropped points to a pretty poor east fife team um, and I think, unfortunately, that is probably the start of a slip. But I hope they prove us pr- prove me wrong and the second half of the season is just as glorious or even more glorious than the first half. Graham, I have three questions for you. First question, let's see if I can remember them all. Um, 
Uh, shoot, already forgotten the first one. We're going to go to the second question. Graham, second <laughs> question for you. What is what is an Albion? Because I, I was typing in Albion into uh, FOTMOB, and like a, a bunch of clubs come up because there are a bunch of them with Albion at the end. What, sure. is, what does that mean? So Albion is a, a term that is used, it's almost like union. It's related to like Great Britain. So okay. Albion is like an alternative ter- term for Great Britain or the union. And so I guess when they were coming up with club names back in the day, a load of random words were tacked on to place names. So Sterling being the town, we were Sterling Albion. And I guess other clubs had also used Albion. So I, I quite like it. It rolls off the tongue and then obviously I got used to it by now. Okay. But- that yeah, is Albion. that's answer to question number two. Thank you for that. I remembered question number one. Uh, title odds. You said you think it's pretty much done. Surely it's not fully done at this point. Four points back, a game in hand on on Dumbarton. Graham, like put a number on it. We talking fifteen percent? We talking twenty percent? Or is it even lower than that? Oh, percentage wise, I'm not sure. I I uh, I can't imagine five thirty eight have a Scottish League <laughs> Two percentage table. And I have to say, I That's don't really bad. look at their percentage tables very often, so I don't actually know what is particularly. What does your heart say, so Graham? Can, what does your heart say? I can do say? it in odds. I can do it in odds, okay, right? So right, I would say, Dun- I would say Dumbarton are probably two to one uh, as the favourites, and at this point, I would say Sterling Albion are probably four to one. I okay, think. so not impossible, not impossible, but the odds are getting longer, as you already referenced earlier. Okay, fair enough. My Indeed. my final question for you, Graham, on this whole episode. What went wrong with the pies, man? You said the pies were good. Are the pies bad now? I, I, this is the most concerning aspect of all of it. What happened? Okay, so the pies at Sterling Albion are still very good, but at East Fife, East Fife last ah, weekend was I one see. of the worst away days that I'd ever been on. It was an £18 ticket, which is the most expensive ticket in the whole league. The two pies were the worst pies I'd ever had in my life. They were both stone cold and didn't taste of anything. But thankfully, Sterling Albion's pies are still very good. I saw that they were teasing a... I haven't got it in front of me, but I'm going to try and remember what the, the filling was. It was chips, donor meat, and curry sauce, I believe. A chips, donor meat, and curry sauce what pie. Is, what is donor is what meat? Were... Graham, what is So donor is meat is like... Uh, what you get in a kebab, like a Turkish kebab. Oh, it's sweet. indistinguishable meat that is scraped off of a big, a, a, a larger lump of meat on a Genuinely, on a stick. I'm down. I'm incredible. <laughs> that sounds really good, Graham. That, that pie so, combo. So I, I will be posting, I might even do a Patreon review video of, of that pie when that one comes to Sterling Albion. <laughs> so hopefully that that is uh, in a couple of weeks' time, which is our next home game. I love, Graham, that that our Patreon is slowly just turning into the Food Network um, because Indeed. I think that is one thing that genuinely all four of us truly enjoy and, and love eating food and talking about food. So, listeners, if you're not already subscribed to our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Show, and you can watch Graham eat a pie and enjoy a pie and review a pie and hopefully watch him be happy after Sterling, Al- Sterling Albion eventually play a game and hopefully inch closer back to top of the table. Graham Ruffin, we've talked about pies. We've talked about U.S. soccer, open roles. We've talked about things that soccer players take for granted and a whole bunch of other stuff. Thank you for joining me to do all of that, Graham. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joel Irie, and good, and good job. Maybe the other two will uh, will join us in, on the next <laughs> podcast and stop slacking off. Ryan's still looking for that pint of milk. That's right. Keep, keep searching, Ryan. We believe in you. Uh, almond milk will do just fine. You can make it work. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in your ears again soon. 